Kia ora, good morning everybody. It's uh, great to be with you in your place again today. And of course we're trusting that this is going to be the last Sunday that we have for a long, long time in level two and we trust we get back to being together next week. Well, uh, just to let you know what's happening around the place this week, uh, today actually, there's a number of our folks heading out to Papamoa Baptist to help them out run their servicing their services there. So Pastor Rob is going to be preaching and uh, we've got the music team going out to help. So it's great to see our folks getting out and about and enjoying being a blessing to others. Well, as you know, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians and that's given us a huge opportunity to see inside a church that was largely dysfunctional. And the more that you get into this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the more that you find how dysfunctional it is. And nothing is sacred. Nothing is sacred, it seems, in this church. Everything is up for grabs. Everything is challengeable. And everything has the potential to explode this community into a thousand pieces and disappear forever. But this morning, I'm looking at a subject that is dear to my heart. But obviously, for me, it's going to be a little bit awkward to talk about because we're talking about pastors in the life of a church. How is it that the pastors or the leaders within a church How do they operate and how do they find that right balance between being servants of God and also being leaders? There's a tension in this. And it comes, a lot of it comes back to how it is that the whole system is set up so that a pastor, a leader can earn an income and at the same time not be dictatorial, but also not be dictated to. It's a fine line. And so this morning I'm calling my message uh, Shared Responsibility. So we'll just uh, bring that up. Thanks very much. But shared responsibility is what a church is all about. We are all given responsibility under the Lord to ensure that this thing we call the church, this body of Christ, functions in a healthy way. So to pick up on where we were in this letter, it's really important for me to be able to state uh, the, the summary statement of last week's message. Remember last week we were talking about meat being sacrificed to idols And for some people, that was a real problem. When it came to eating their own food, they were trying to work out whether the meat that had been sacrificed at a temple was actually going to violate them somehow, physically or spiritually. And so therefore, people struggled to eat this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. The conclusion that Paul reached was that we had to respect one another's strengths and respect one another's weaknesses. And Paul said this, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So here we have Paul talking about this uh, problem with meat, but his conclusion is that whatever it takes, we should respect people wherever they're at. So there's a level of mutual submission going on here, whereby people aren't taking uh, privileges or responsibilities, uh, sorry, take take the responsibilities seriously for each other. So so this morning, um, as we move into this next chapter from, um, from Paul's letter, we find Paul talking about his own challenges. The city of Corinth is, um, is a problem, problem place because there is so much conflict and Paul is looking for equality. And so it's out of this setting that Paul is now being challenged himself because Paul is someone who is uh, 
working amongst them. He's been given um, a level of responsibility by God. But the people who he's ministering to are really struggling to see Paul in the same way that they would see others. Others being the other leaders who have come through Corinth. And so for Paul, um, he describes himself in this fashion uh, when he talks about his own ministry. This is taken from 1 Corinthians uh, 15, further down the track. And it says that um, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Paul describes himself here as one abnormally born. Now, he wasn't born breech birth. He wasn't born by caesarean. What he's describing here is his spiritual rebirth. All the other people who are represented in Corinth as apostles were either of the 12 disciples or of the 70 other disciples that followed Jesus. So what qualified a person to be an apostle was somebody who had ministered with Jesus. And we immediately think that it's the 12. Well, there was more than the 12. There was, in fact, the 70. If you remember uh, in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, the, the, the leaders were sent out or the disciples were sent out. So to be one of that group meant that they were qualified to be an apostle. Now, of course, Paul had a very different experience. Paul had a different experience because he was persecuting the church and he was on, his ro- on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him causing him to fall off his horse and go blind. And then a prophetic word was spoken over him to say that he was going to be a leader. So this is what Paul is talking about when he describes himself as being abnormally born. He was born again into the Christian community, but it wasn't at a point in time like others. It was actually about a a situation that just exploded, if you like, on that road to Damascus. Paul was born again, and now he is a leader, a leader who is making huge impacts wherever he goes. So um, just take the next slide, thanks. Paul explains to the church that... um, Thanks, uh, Lewis, I'll have it, thanks. Uh, Paul's explaining to the church that he um, has a right to be able to have certain things that other apostles already had. And what they had was food and drink, accommodation, the right to take a wife with them. And so Paul now is coming back to this this city and he's saying, hey, listen, why are you treating me differently to others? What is going on here? Why, just because I was abnormally born, why have you treated me poorly? Indeed, he was the founding pastor, the founding apostle of this church. And so this is a question that is valid. Let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll, we'll take it from there. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? So here we can see Paul describing his own pedigree, if you like. He's saying that he's worked amongst them, and indeed, if he wasn't an apostle, then the the work of the Corinthian church wouldn't have even 
been established. So he's saying, just look around you. You are the mark of my apostleship. So don't start pushing me away or separating me out from the other apostles. I have the right to be an apostle. I have the right to be looked after as one. Uh, Paul then goes on to say, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and Cep- brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? So we've already seen that Paul is single. Uh, it appears that he lost his wife at some stage in his, his spiritual journey as an, as an apostle, uh, because we looked a couple of weeks ago at what it meant to be single, and Paul says, I prefer for you to be like me, single. So we know Paul isn't here appealing for the rights to take his own wife, but he's appealing for the rights of others who are traveling with him to take a wife with them. And so Paul is now um, trying to connect the call of God in his life with the fact that it's having an impact upon the people, and therefore the people have a responsibility to look after Paul. So let's go back and have a look at how God um, set up a relationship between God and his people and their leadership right from the beginning of the book of Exodus. See, within Scripture, there's a unique relationship that's been created between a spiritual leader and God's people. And this started after the Exodus when the people of God had been taken out of Egypt and they were given, um, if you like, a framework for how God's temple would work and how the people of God would function as a worshipping people, God's own people. Now, what happened is when they came out of Egypt and ultimately into the promised land, the land was divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, in fact, that's not true, because the land was divided amongst the 11 tribes of the people of Israel, and the priesthood, the Levites, they were not to inherit any land. They were the spiritual leaders of the people. They were going to set up the temple practices. They were going to facilitate the sacrifices and all the festivals throughout the year. Let's read here uh, from, um, from Numbers how it is that this was brought about. The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance amongst the Israelites. And he says, I give to the Levites, that's the priests, all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on, the Israelites must not go near the tent of meeting or they will bear the consequences of their sin and will die. It is the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting and bear the responsibility for any offenses they commit against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They will receive no inheritance amongst the Israelites. Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That is why I said concerning them, they will have no inheritance amongst the Israelites. So it's a little bit long-winded, but you get the idea. What's happening is the land is being divided by Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, as the people go into the nation, and 11 plots of land are established for the tribes 
to go and make a home, uh, plant crops, raise animals, and have a living. But to the priests, he says, no, no, that doesn't work for you. You are going to be in relationship with the people. They are going to create um, space for you within the provision of the tithe. They bring that into the temple, and that is what you live off. And equally, you are going to uh, serve them by being their priests. So God created a relationship of mutual independence between Israel's spiritual leaders and the remaining 11 tribes. So you can see right from the outset, there's this, this beautiful symbiosis that's being created. The people of God needed to have a priestly uh, tribe that would serve them because they are the people of God, and yet they were going to be dependent upon the obedience of the other tribes to bring those tithes into the storehouse. And this was a very, very real deal. This was a very powerful part of their culture. Uh, some of you may remember that when King Saul was appointed as the king, the first king in Israel, uh, he totally messed up by himself performing a sacrifice before the army went into battle. The prophet Samuel was supposed to be there at a certain time, but he was running late. He was the one from the tribe, the tribe of Levi to perform the sacrifice, but he didn't perform it. And therefore, uh, King Saul jumped in and said, I'll do it. And on that basis alone, that was enough for God to say, no, you can no longer be the king of Israel. And so these were very, very powerful things. And they established a relationship between the priestly service of the people of Israel and the rest of the nation. And so it's with this background that Paul is wanting to describe a new way but it taps into an old way in which the people who do the teaching, uh, the preaching, the leading, uh, are allowed to be dependent upon the other folks in that community. Paul pushes on, he says this, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this is written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do, do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we all... Shouldn't we have it all the more? And so Paul is appealing to them, saying, listen, um, others have come amongst you, other apostles, and you've looked after them. Now, one of the traditions within the Greek and Roman culture of the day was that people hosted philosophers, hosted teachers, hosted entertainers into their own homes. And so the way it worked is that uh, Greek and Roman society was built around these traveling professionals who would come in and speak philosophy for a week or two, and you would have them staying at your home, and then you would invite all of your friends, and you would become a person of influence because you had this star attraction living in your home. Uh, it'll be a little bit like, um, you know, the, 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 the band, um, let's think of a band, I'll, I'll 
state my age, I'll say, let's say you too was on tour and you decided that you were going to host them at your place, you'd put them up, you'd give them the best food, the best drink, and then you'd invite all your buddies around to have a concert at your place. And guess what? There was a whole lot of reflected glory that went on to the host. And this is where a lot of people's um, fame came about and they established themselves as sort of key people in a city because they could afford to do this. So it was in this tradition that these apostles were being hosted. And the Christian community and the unchurched community would come in and listen to these folks talk about Christ. So Paul is saying, listen, every person has a right. Every person has a right to earn an income. He names these folks, soldiers, vineyard workers, shepherds, plowmen, and threshers, okay, people who bring wheat. And then he also identifies out of the Old Testament how it is that you don't muzzle an oxen when it treads the grain. In other words, you don't put something on its face so it can't eat the grain that it's treading on. And even in today's um, 21st century society, you can see that picture of oxen treading out grain. See how deep that grain is. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? So once these cattle tread on it for days and days on end, uh, the, the chaff, chaff is taken away and the wheat remains. But these cattle are allowed to eat as they work. So Paul is saying, you know, it's essentially the same thing for us. We can eat while we work. So Paul is creating a case for himself to be able to be looked after by the people whom he is serving. Paul says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? Here he's talking about the Levites. And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, the tradition was such that the Levites didn't all just live in the temple together. It wasn't this expanding community that totally filled up the temple. Uh, if we look at, um, for example, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, uh, he had a revelation from God while he was serving in the temple. Now, his group would come in for a week twice a year. And I say his group, his family from his village, they would come in as Levites and serve the nation. So they would go out and they would still have land, but they were often tenants. They weren't allowed to own the land, they were allowed to rent the land, and they were allowed to create crops for themselves, but they had to come in and serve in this way. And so here is Paul describing what is a common practice. However, having established that Paul has a right to food and a right to be looked after, he now says this word. He says, but, but, but I have not used any of these rights, Paul says. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. What's this boast? Well, here it goes, his boast. So Paul's saying, I haven't used these rights that I'm owed. You're obligated to me because I teach amongst you, but I haven't used these rights. And here he says this. Now I'm going to boast, he says. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this 
that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So Paul's saying, I've got rights, but I'm not exercising them because I want to ensure that everybody gets to hear the message. So remember when I described a moment ago how people were hosted in their homes. Uh, often people who were wealthy enough to host a visiting speaker in their home, they had a collection of wealthy friends. And so the wealthy were ministering to the wealthy. And on that basis, the wealthy could pay the guest speaker money for being there. Paul says, if I take that out of the equation, it changes the dynamics completely. You see, if I'm not getting paid for this, if I'm looking after myself, I don't have to share the gospel in this rich and wealthy context. What I do get to do is share it freely with anybody who would be coming to listen to me. And what we know is that Paul would work as a tent maker, and that meant to be cross-legged on the floor as he was stitching tents, cutting material, and people would gather around him to hear the gospel described for free. Equally, he'd go to the synagogues on a Saturday and share from the Old Testament gospels the fact that the Messiah who was prophesied had already come in Jesus, as Jesus. So this is how Paul created for himself an opportunity for essentially the gospel to be heard by every class within society. And in many respects, that's what happens in our churches today. Uh, when people come into the life of a church, they're not expected to pay to come in. You're not going to a movie where you pay your $20 and, and then get to hear the gospel. What happens is other people who are mature in the faith support the work of the church, I, and that includes the preachers and the staff team, so that the gospel can be heard free of charge by anybody who would come in. It's a, it's, it's a time-honored practice. And this is called, what I think is quite simply put, uh, a mutual interdependence. Okay, So Paul is describing his own desire to see that the, the gospel is preached and it's preached in a way that it's not hindered by a person's wealth or lack of it. Okay, so it's quite a, a cool thing that's happening here because this is the church in action. And what Paul is doing here is he's laying down these principles that are building a culture that has lasted since 2,000 years ago through to today. Okay, so Paul is independent and he wants it to be he wants to be independent one of the challenges that we have within the church today and this is a potential tension for all churches is that there can be extremes when it comes to who gets paid what for doing what okay we, we've all heard the horror stories of of uh, church leaders getting paid squillions of dollars flying around in their learjet saying that this is god's blessing on my life demanding more than they should ever demand, and, and quoting what Paul has said here, but way out of context, saying, I have a right. Well, you're called to be a servant, and you're called to a life of sacrifice, and you're called to live within your community. And we can all see the obvious tension that that creates when people are demanding more than they should for the sake of preaching the gospel. However, there's something that is equally uh, challenging, and I found this a few years ago when I was the Baptist national leader. You see, there are times when people are barely scraping by working part-time roles and, uh, and bringing a whole lot of tension, sorry, bringing a whole lot of sacrifice into the church. That can be equally manipulative. Now, you say, well, how can that be manipulative? 
You see, when someone is working part-time, working really, really hard, that all sounds really, really good. But the problem with that is that somebody's impact might not be equal to the task or equal to the calling of being uh, a preacher. Therefore, they hold the church community to a level of ransom because they're saying, man, I'm sacrificed so much to do this work. How can you even challenge me that my work isn't equal to the task of what's required? And so that's a really, really difficult situation for anybody because you've got to say, listen, you are sacrificing a huge amount to be here in the same fashion that Paul did, but you're not delivering the outcomes that the gospel requires. That's a terrible conversation to have to have. You have to have, but it's an important conversation that you have to have because at the end of the day, we're measured not by our faithfulness, but by our fruitfulness. Faithfulness is part of it, but fruitfulness is the ultimate outworking of what it means to be someone who's called to the task of preaching. So Paul moves on. Paul moves on and says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, as so as to win those under the law. All sounds very confusing, doesn't it? But what Paul is saying is that the most important thing is that the gospel is preached. Paul, for example, in uh, Acts chapter 21, um, went to the temple in Jerusalem. He shaved his head and he went into the temple to put down a date that he began an eight-day purification process. So here is Paul, free from the Old Testament laws, because he's now free in Christ. He still goes back to Jerusalem, a place where he is known as someone who's a rebel, and he goes into the temple, shaved head, ready to, to say, I'm here to go through a Jewish purification process. He ultimately gets arrested, falsely accused, but what Paul is saying is, to the Jews, I became a Jew to win someone. To those under the law, I became as one under the law to win someone. But Paul goes on to say this, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Paul, I'll just stop here for a second. What Paul is saying is that to the, these are the Gentiles, and um, Paul, in his letter to the Galatian church, totally, was totally frustrated with the apostle Peter for his actions amongst the Gentiles. You see, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles, those who, weren't with, who didn't have the law, eating with the Gentiles, and sharing Christ with them. But then there came a season when Peter withdrew from eating with the Gentiles. And Paul absolutely rips into Peter for doing this. Because why? Because he had stopped this key principle of becoming one to win one. And so it was Paul who rebukes Peter and says, listen, if you're hanging out with the Gentiles, you serve them. You eat the food that is given to you without having a problem with your conscience. You do this because you need to become one to win one. 
And then in verse 22, as we read, it says, to the weak, I, as Paul, became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that in all possible means I might save some. So Paul is talking here about the weak, those who have a weak conscience. So last week we looked at how it is that the weak were those who weren't prepared to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul basically is saying to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. He's saying, when I go and hang out with those who don't like eat meeting, eating meat sacrificed to idols, I'll eat a veggie burger, okay? I'll eat tofu, okay? I'll eat lentils. I'll eat anything to ensure that I don't violate or offend somebody. To the weak, I became weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. That's Paul's goal in life. So when he is giving over his rights, he's giving them over because he wants to be in the best possible place to share the gospel. And it's in this final sentence that we'll look at today that really summarizes what Paul was on about here. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And when he says share in its blessings, he's talking here about the ability to have fellowship with other Christians, the ability to be able to see reconciliation happening, forgiveness happen, people restored to wholeness, people uh, set free from demonic powers and influences, people taken from hopelessness to life, people coming into community and becoming the best version of them that they can be, all because God has forgiven them and they understand that they are now a new creation in Christ. That is what Paul did this for. His greatest goal and his greatest desire was certainly not about material wealth, but it was about being able to, for the sake of the gospel, share in its blessings with others. And so, in conclusion, the relationship between a, a, sp a spiritual leader, a church leader, and its people is a very, very unique relationship. There's no other thing like it in the world. There's a level of codependence, mutual interdependence that is built into the relationship that exists between pastors and ministers and the congregations, just as it was between the Levites and the nation of Israel. All of these things are built in a way that requires mutual submission one to another and mutual responsibility back one to another. And it's a beautiful thing that God has created. And so when we look to the church in Corinth, we see Paul pulling up and out and exposing this challenge that if he hadn't addressed it, would have been an ongoing problem for the church into the centuries ahead. But here Paul defines it in such a way that it's a beautiful thing that we can enjoy and enter into. So I'm going to finish here and uh, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Father, as we have looked at the church and what it means to be the church today in the context of leadership, support, rights, laying down rights. All of these things, Lord, combine to make this unique place called the church, a place where you are glorified, where leaders lead through God-given authority, where people serve out of obedience to you. But in the midst of it, Lord, we are all standing at your feet, all in submission to you. And we're called to share in the gospel and the benefits and the blessings of that all together. That we would see lives changed, our lives changed, 
as people hear the word of the Lord and give themselves over to the grace of God that's offered through the cross of Christ. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what it means to us today to be a community that is healthy, is accountable, is responsible, and serves you for the greater purpose. And so we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, folks, I trust that um, we see your happy faces here next week. We're really looking forward to that. Uh, We've really, really missed having you here over the last six weeks, and we can only trust by the grace of God that uh, we can get back to life as normal as we know it in this day. So God bless you. Have a great week.